Hello, and thank you for joining us for today's Sparks and Honey Culture Briefing, the future of inclusive content. I'm Davion Harris, Chief Client Officer and Head of the DEI Practice at Sparks and Honey, and I'm so excited to have you here with us for the second briefing of our part series, Beyond Checking a Box. So we've been bringing in special guests each week throughout Black History Month to discuss various topics, exploring the intersections of diversity, equity, and inclusion, culture, and industry transformation. Today we'll be discussing the future of inclusive content and how we move beyond tokenism and diversity theater to telling more authentic and representative stories. I'm joined today by my co-briefer, Sparks and Honey Cultural Strategy Director, Edward Faith. Thanks for joining me, Edward. And we also have our two esteemed guests, CJ Hunt and Kamala Avila-Salman. So CJ, I'll start with you. CJ is a comedian and filmmaker living in New York City. He is a field producer for Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and has also served as a staff writer for A&E's Black and White, and is field producer for BET's The Rundown with Robin Thede. Uh, he's also a fellow with New America and Firelight Media. He directed The Neutral Ground, a film all about breaking up the Confederacy, which won Best Documentary at the American Black Film Festival and is nominated for Best Score by the International Documentary Association. Welcome, CJ. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. And then Kamala. Kamala is the first ever head of inclusive content for the Lionsgate Motion Picture Group a role aimed at developing and implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies to reflect a globally diverse audience in the studio's film slate. After pursuing her BA and MBA from Harvard, she has worked across music, movie, movies, tech, TV, and streaming entertainment, leading marketing campaigns for Janelle Monet, The Voice, and Red Table Talk, to name a few. Her current role positions her to pursue the North Star that brought her to LA diversifying the powerful images and messages disseminated by Hollywood. In addition to her work at Lionsgate, she is the host of the podcast, From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey, geared at helping people move from woke feelings to clear effective action to advance racial justice. She's also the co-chair of the Alliance Young Professionals Board, an organization that supports the largest charter school operator in LA serving Black and Latinx students in some of the poorest, least resourced neighborhoods in the city. And she serves as chair of Janelle Monet's Femme the Future Foundation Board, which creates and runs after school and summer enrichment activities for young women and girls growing up in under-resourced communities of color. Welcome, Kamala. Thank you so much. And I've got to get a shorter bio. That was fantastic. <laughs> you know what? We Thank had you. to get it all in there because there's so many uh, important yeah. points in there. So, so, <laughs> so I want to start by painting some context for our discussion by bringing in a couple of data points uh, before we delve into the issues themselves. Because I think, you know, as we talk about what's required to deliver change in the industry, it's important for our audience to have the facts and why we're having this conversation in the first place. So a couple points here. As of today, Black actors comprise only 11% of the leading roles in films. And a large majority of those films are considered what we would coin race-related projects, um, which often typically receive lower investment in both production and promotion. And then when taken off screen, less than 6% of writers, directors, and producers of US produced films are Black. 
And when we look across non-race related films or within genres like the superhero genre, for example, representation's even lower. So Kamala, I'm going to start with you. You have such a pivotal role that is not only poignant for Lionsgate, but for the industry overall as the first head of inclusive content for the studio. So we're all familiar with the ongoing scrutiny around films lacking representation and movements to change this. Uh, many might be familiar with Oscar So White, um, that hashtag, which was actually coined by our very own advisory board member, April Rain. Um, but your remit goes beyond ensuring there's diverse representation in films, but exploring what those representations are doing and perhaps not doing to drive equity and inclusion. And even challenging that coded and loaded uh, meanings and definitions of words like diversity and mainstream. So can you talk to us about some of those core challenges that exist when it comes to efforts to achieve more, quote unquote, diverse representation, both in terms of language and action? Yeah, I mean, thank you so much again. I'm excited to be here. So there are so many different types of challenges that that we tackle here. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of energy in terms of what is happening on screen. And I totally get that. But like I knew coming in that for me, diversity, equity and inclusion, inclusive content is not about casting. Right. It's not just about having people of color on screen or black people on screen. It really is about thinking bigger than that. What are the roles that they are playing? Do their roles have agencies? Are they characters of consequence? Are they empowered? You know, do they solely exist to serve white characters in the canvas? Like there's some versions of representation that are actually not that helpful. And we have to have a conversation about that. It's not all a win, right? So it's like when I think about sort of that 11% number, yes, it's underrepresented from, you know, our representation in the population. But some might say, well, not that bad. It's just 3% down. Like, let's talk about what is the quality of that 11%. Tell me what percentage of that 11% is directed towards films that um, center what I call the three Ps, prisons, plantations, projects, right? If I take that out of that number, what's remaining? And I think that's really important. In addition, like we need to be talking about what's happening behind screen because what is happening on screen is a reflection of what's happening behind screen. Part of it is writers, directors, producers. And so we have a lot of focus on how do we elevate, discover, empower filmmakers of color to tell their own stories and create opportunities and resources for them. But then additionally, further behind the screen, what's happening at studios? What's happening at production companies? Who is represented there? Um, you know, the McKinsey report that I believe some of the data you just quoted is from also quoted that, you know, film and television have one of the whitest and malest C-suites of any industry, including some industries that take a lot of flack for their lack of diversity, oil and gas, tech, like we are right in that area. We are above in some cases. So of course we're not gonna see a balanced representation on screen when all of the people who have the power to say yes, don't look like us. Like how, how will they have to be reminded to think about us, whereas they will always think about themselves. And so part of it is like facilitating that conversation at the studio. And it's a difficult conversation. I will say I'm really proud of how our Lionsgate leadership has leaned into these difficult conversations. Like we're not shying away from talking about the legacy of white supremacy in our industry. We're not shying away from talking about power and privilege. And it's difficult, but we're not gonna make progress unless we start to do that more. 
Love that. And, you know, I, I want to bring CJ into this conversation because as, as we talked about this kind of in uh, our, our prep conversations, Kamala, you're on the side of what gets greenlit, what we as audiences ultimately see. Um, and CJ, you know, is very much on that kind of behind the scenes of what stories uh, need to be told and really trying to elevate um, black stories in particular and the ones that might not be um, as easy to talk about. And so CJ, I want to um, bring you in from the perspective of the aspects of, I mean, you do a lot in documentaries, but you also do a lot in comedy with The, the Daily Show. And so what's the importance? How do you see your role, uh, you know, in terms of developing content and stories from your perspective and, and from a representation standpoint? And how are some of those, the, the barriers that you've experienced um, in terms of what you've been told might not be worth telling, if you will? Um, can you talk to us about that journey and some of the challenges that you've experienced? along the way. Sure. Um, I, I am a, a Black director of a Civil War documentary, and you know, that's a, that's a field full of Black directors. <laughs> I'm sure we can name all of our favorite Black directors of Civil War docs, but yeah, it is a, it, so my, my experience has been, you know, in a genre where there should be all the Black visibility and all the Black stories, mm -hmm. and yet we told the story about the Civil War as this, you know, misunderstanding between white brothers, brother against brother, and we told it that way for 150 years. So my first film, The Neutral Ground, is about thinking about like, how did we come up with this story that keeps Confederate monuments in place and tells us that the Old South wasn't a terrifying place where most whites were desperately poor and Black people were property uh, and murdered regularly. But what is the, how did we come up with a story that tells us that the Old South was a beautiful place of magnolias and live oaks and broad porches with happy slaves and white men who were just fighting for home? So I think my entry into this convo is less thinking about what is actually happening with our faces on screen and more about what is the story, what is the nature of the story that we are telling? So we have that memory about, we have a national memory about the Old South that partly comes from Gone with the Wind. And I think this is, you know, an important time to remember the stories that we tell actually rewrite public memory, right? That more people are familiar with pop culture and movies and film than they are of actual history, right? Most people can name what the 13th Amendment is now, not because they're, you know, constitution stands, but because they saw 13th, right? So as a content maker, I am aware that the things that we are making are literally writing history and are more powerful for people's memory. So when we think about Gone with the Wind, Hattie McDaniels wins, is, is the first black person to win an Oscar ever for her role in that. And you know, when you're thinking about representation, yes, that's a representation win. We're like, yes, slay, great. You know, like that's us on screen. Oscar's not so white anymore, right? <laughs> But when you look at what that portrayal is, it's of a happy slave. And it is uplifting an idea that then will stay and, and be literally in stone for a hundred more years. So I think that when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, I want us thinking about what is the price of the stories that we are telling, right? Not simply, how do I make empowering portrayals of black people in the present? How do I show black people's faces on screen? But I think it's how do we make the past more visible 
in ways that empower us towards justice now, right? If, if the portrayal that we are showing of the past gives into the sort of gravitational pull that we have in this country about telling stories where racism doesn't exist now and really didn't exist then. And isn't it great that we had, you know, all these, all these powerful black people in positions where we never actually had them. Like the gravity of stories that we tell about race in this country are towards fantasy. So how do we tell stories that not only put us in the right places, but don't give in to the gravitational pull to lie about what race has been in this country? I have chills, CJ. Like there's so much in what you said. And just to add really quickly, like it's very intentional for me that I'm working in the field that I'm in and the role that I'm in. I feel like I'm finally in the role that I moved to LA for and honestly that I got into entertainment for because I've never underestimated the power of entertainment in particular storytelling, narrative storytelling and documentary storytelling to really reshape the public conversation. And I think a lot of times that one of the, like there were so many myths that I felt like I needed to dispel when I came in. Um, and one of them was that like inclusive content is about message movies, right? It's not about message movies. Like there may be some movies that have a very explicit message in them about X, Y, and Z related to social justice, but we're communicating messages in every like movie. There is no such thing as a messageless movie, actually. Right. And so when you think about the fact that, like, if I look at Hollywood's history and I ask people, like, quick, name me a romantic comedy that starred a Black disabled person, like, we'll be here for the rest of this, like, session trying to think about that. Right. Um, that omission is really critical because you've also, in telling the stories you've told, you've also shaped a narrative of who does and doesn't fall in love whose love stories are interesting and not interesting, which characters are worth following or not following. So it's not like there are many, many movies that are problematic, not just because of the actual representations in them. They can also be problematic for the representations left out, what we intentionally choose to put in and take out. And it's funny that you talk about um, history just because, you know, at Lionsgate, we have the privilege of working with Nicole Hannah-Jones on 1619 and all of the work to come out of that. And her entire mission is like, how do we tell a more complete story of American history and have some of the, those more difficult conversations? But I also see that as like, that is a canvas overall, not just for conversations amongst audiences, but also for conversations amongst executives, also for conversations amongst industry. I, I would hazard a guess that most people have never thought about um, the role that Hattie McDaniels played in the way that you just described. And for those of those that did, were probably black. Right. So what does it mean to bring this type of consciousness to non-Black people? And so it's it's been kind of funny. I've heard from some of my colleagues, like now when they're reading scripts after being here a year, they're like, when I'm reading the script, I just hear your voice in my head saying, that's a trope, white savior, blah, blah, blah. You're ruining script reading for me. I'm like, am I ruining it or am I fixing it for you? Because you should be noticing that. You don't need me to tell you. Now, now I have chills because as I was thinking <laughs> about this conversation, I was literally thinking, man, somebody should make an MCU like the Marvel Extended Universe. Like somebody should make an MCU out of just the 1619 project. And I guess that's you already. But like when I think about, I'm reading 1619 now and she's telling stories that we never grew up with, right? She's telling stories about Dunmore's proclamation and all these black enslaved people who flocked to the British to fight our founding fathers because the British tell them, yo, I'll make you free, right? She's telling us that Crispus Attucks is an, is an escaped slave, 
Yeah. And I, I've known that the first black, you know, I'm from Boston. So I've known that the first with a black father. So I know that the first black man to die, the first man to die in the Revolutionary War is a black man. Not before 1619 had I understood that this is an enslaved person who, who claimed his own freedom as well. So it, it is like there is, there, is a, there is a profession that is actually writing what the, the world remembers and it is film and TV. And, yeah. and I absolutely think you're right. What we say and what we don't say actually is history. That's so powerful. And I think, you know, Kamala, I mean, so many things of what each of you have, have raised here brings up so many different issues. I mean, the idea of telling a complete story, I think, touches on so many different aspects because to your earlier point about the three Ps, um, I think is really powerful because we're seeing these representations, negative portrayals. And of course, many of them are, are accurate when we talk about plantations, for example, CJ, to your point, um, but that's not it, right? We have black love stories and that are just stories. Um, so why do we have to kind of qualify them or have this sense of absolutism when we, we think about representation? Um, and CJ, I want to go back to something you were talking about before, because what it, it felt like you were getting to is this idea of colorblind casting um, in some aspects as we, uh, you know, think about um, kind of removing the reality um, of what we're talking about to uh, quote unquote, you know, get to this sense of inclusion, but really we're ignoring and maybe distracting from the real issues. And for our viewers, you know, colorblind casting has been talked about, you know, it's this act of uh, casting without factoring in the actor's ethnicity or skin color or gender. Um, Hamilton, Bridgerton are famous examples of this. And while some argue uh, that it normalizes non-whiteness and allows us to be more inclusive in the stories we're uh, telling that might otherwise be exclusionary, um, inserting black talent into kind of this quote unquote mainstream story can also reduce this perceived need for having these more black centered stories. And again, kind of removing the reality uh, attached to it. So. I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, the role of colorblind casting, you know, is it helping uh, in terms of driving inclusion or is it distracting from the real issues? How, how do we, you know, kind of reconcile um, as we think about this going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I felt incredibly powerful watching Hamilton. Right. Like like there's there's a feeling of of imagining the founding fathers as black that makes me go, yes, these are all the things that were left in the margins. These are, this is our, you know, it's back to what Nicole Hannah-Jones is saying, like, this is our birthright. Like, we helped imagine freedom in this country, but, you know, it is only after time and all the think pieces that you're like, huh, I am experiencing them through the proxy of whiteness, right? Like, I am not talking about actual Black founding fathers, right? Like, why am I like so into Alexander Hamilton as like the ultimate MC who rises through America on the power of his word when Frederick Douglass is a dude who actually did that, right? So I think the question is, the question is not about like, you know, the best, my interest in it is less about best practices and more about what does the very nature of the conversation that we're having preclude? Where, where, where are the barriers in our imagination? And when we are playing games about is this colorblind casting that I'm casting, you know, uh, like in the new, you know, David Copperfield piece of I'm casting or the Green Knight, I'm casting in a way that 
you know, I'm not really thinking about race or am I color conscious casting where I'm like, actually like, ooh, as a, as a black founding father, this is inverting. But all of those preclude, the, you know, those are supply issue, right? It, it, it imagines that the supply is just white histories and we got to figure out how to get brown and black and queer people into them. When actually, you know, some of the most inspiring stories about our past are, are hidden stories about black and brown people. So I think it is about expanding the supply rather than imagining that the supply is limited to whiteness in which, into which we must fit. That's such a great point. I mean, because I think the way that I think about it is that it's not binary, right? And like, it's so easy to force everything into a like, yes or no. And so like, even going back to your question, like, is it helpful? Yes. Is it limited? Yes. Is it problematic? Yes. What if the answer is yes to all three of those questions? Then what? Right. And I think that like this is like people want very simple, single variable answers like and you can get so much of like this kind of what inspired my podcast, which is kind of like people just tell me the answer. Just tell me what to do. And it's like, no, you got to go out there and do your work and actually contend with the complexity of the issues that we're talking about. Like there is not one answer. And so I think to your point, CJ, part of it is that like I think that it is a major scarcity is the problem. Yes. Right. Because we have limited the container within which stories that can include black and brown people um, can exist to such a narrow container that like everybody is in that box fighting each other for like who gets to have the microphone for this particular like we're going to like argue over the 11 percent of roles. Right. As opposed to being like, what if we had 30 like. What if there was actually room for many different types? Because like for me, and this is something that I've learned even more coming to Lionsgate, like as a black executive that has the power to sit in these rooms and shape some of these conversations, I want to push empowering narratives. I want to push things that are transformational, that are groundbreaking, et cetera. But I am also not here to stand between black filmmakers and tell them what they can and can't make, right? I'm here to say that we should have more black filmmakers so that we have more stories that can be told of course like there's always a line and like we are managing for problematic tropes and stereotypes and trying to call those out you know but i do think that um you know like i'm i'm a big proponent of what i call color conscious casting which is like maybe like you wrote the script and you didn't have any particular actor in mind i would challenge that like if you are a white writer you were probably writing white as neutral because that is your experience how could that not be on the page let's so let's call it that like you wrote a white character and now we're going to cast a black person you should assume that you have to go back to the source material and figure out like does it still make sense and you should also assume that you have to like gather the right resources consultants co-writers co-producers bring people on it doesn't mean that you can't tell that story it just means that like there's no way that you can tell it correctly without additional support what's the shame in admitting that and then we can work from there but i also love your point cj about like part of it is that like we have limited ourselves to like we can only be inserted in either white centered stories or stories that come from the imaginations of like white creators and they're trying to like figure out where we fit in without challenging that like just the other day i learned about a story of a young black girl named sarah rector who was like one of like before madam cj walker she was the first like black millionaire in america and she was nine 
she had an oil field in the back of her, like, um, in her backyard that she got through the Dawes Act. Like, there are just so many things. And I'm like, I have gone to some of the best schools in the country, watch <laughs> the world. That never came up. I want a uh, refund. Yeah, yes. What's going on? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel, I feel that so strongly of, like, we, we just had... You know, it's just January. It was just the anniversary of the greatest slave rebellion that has ever happened in America. It's the 1811 German Coast Uprising, right? Where like 500 enslaved people escape and march on New Orleans to kill their masters, right? And I didn't know about that until I was 34 and making my film. And when you talk, when we talk with students about this, none of them about know it now. Yet we are cheering Khaleesi in Game of Thrones doing fantasy versions of the real things that we did. So I think that it is like, there are such sort sort of smart ways and everything you hear Kamala saying is like, you have to do your work, right? Like, like what is the deep thinking and work you're doing behind this? But I think the most exciting piece of that work is resurrection and, and resurrecting stories that, that aren't even in our brains and make yeah. us actually be able to see our see ourselves differently now. Every story could be called Hidden Figures. Like, that, that's <laughs> yeah. like literally the entirety of what we're talking about is like hidden American figures, to be clear. Yes, all execs should have a sticky that just says hidden figures that they yeah. just have to look back and go, okay, who are the hidden figures in this story yeah. that we are inventing or that we are resurrecting? Yeah. Love that. And, and Kola, I mean, even black creators um, who are super conscious and plugged in are still products of the storytelling environment that we've grown up in. Yeah. In terms of the people kind of coming through your door, are you seeing people leading with these stories that kind of fit in that black film box? Are you seeing them increasingly bold to tell stories without some of those classic kind of components of this makeshift genre? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, from our prep call, you know how I feel about the the term Black film. Black mm-hmm. is not a genre, mm-hmm. right? Though studios right. operate as if it is, right? Um, yeah. Black, um, you can have a Black-centered narrative that is such because it is a, you know, Black-centered cast. But what is a Black story? What is a Black film? Like, I still, what's the genre? Is it a romance? Is it an action? Is it an adventure? Is it a whatever else? That tells us how we should position and market it market it, not who's in it. But to your point, I ask, in some ways I feel like I am too um, downstream in the process to know like truly how many black creators and creators of color in general are trying mm-hmm. to push outside of the lanes. Um, mm-hmm. Because as a studio, we see and review things that are much closer to quote unquote being a movie, right? So we rely on producers, we rely on production companies, we rely on agencies, people that like finish and package, et cetera, because they're trying to present to us things that within the next 18 to 24 months at the most, like this could be a movie, right? And so I think that there's probably a ton of filtering that's happening before it even gets to us. Um, And, you know, I can't say off the top of my head, I'm seeing a ton of like black centered superhero, hundred million dollar where people are, but that is probably not a reflection of the imagination of black creators. That is a reflection of all of the gatekeepers before me that tell those people don't pitch that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I, 
Go ahead, Edward. No, please, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think just to that point and knowing the remit of your role, Kamala, you know, it is about looking at those problematic kind of traditional historical frameworks for yeah. thinking about what success looks like in the industry. Because oftentimes, you know, when you're looking at what gets greenlit, it's about, oh, what performed well with the quote unquote mainstream historically in the past. And that should essentially inform what we do going forward. But as we know, films like Black Panther might not have, you know, been uh, gone, you know, gone through or been greenlit if we were relying on that. So, you know, it's interesting just thinking about that as well as a construct and how we go forward, not just in terms of theoretically wanting to be more inclusive, but also the kind of mechanics and operational aspects that are required to truly see that change. Yeah, I mean, when you were talking about challenges, like that's definitely one of them. I call it the tyranny of comps, where to tell a story, um, I have to be able to point to 10 other times that story has been told and been successful. Well, if we're starting from a place where you know you excluded people, then you've almost stacked the deck such that I can't provide 10 because any 10 I provide are going to feel like the exceptions, right? And so whether it is Black Panther or even Crazy Rich Asians or whatever, we're talking about like, Generally, Hollywood is a copycat kind of business where if something works well, you can expect four more four more versions of it to come out very quickly. That doesn't happen as much with like black centered and by POC centered narratives. Like I was waiting for like, where's the seven other versions of trying to catch that like crazy rich Asians money? Like nobody's working on that. Where's the five different version of, of trying to catch the like black superhero, which by the way, like that was not, you can't get to those numbers exclusively on a black audience, right? There are many, many, many groups of people that want to see people of color in their films, right? Um, so who's chasing that nut, right? It just like, it doesn't pan out the way that it does in like, you know, in, in other areas. And so that's one of the challenges. The word mainstream is a challenge. The word gen market is a challenge. Just the lexicon of the industry that without ever talking about race, like, cause all three of those terms that I just said, mainstream, tyranny of comps, or even just comps and gen market, race is not mentioned in any of them, but they are incredibly white centered standards that have not been held up to the scrutiny as white centered standards. So that is the piece that I have to continue like bringing in and advocating and illuminating while at the same time fighting people saying, you're making everything about race. And it's like, I didn't do that, you did. I also have to say like, you know, to, to this notion that Black Panther wouldn't be made, you know, if we were following the data, like, what is the data? Like what, like all, all of my favorite yep. shows, what is the data that, Which you know, data? was like, yeah. you know what we really need? Um, stories about Black history intertwined with Lovecraftian monsters, right? Like, I don't know what data was saying that we need that, but that's like one of my favorite shows. What is the what is the cold pitch for Watchmen, right? That like the things that we, you know, I want people in space and I want different imaginings of the Tulsa race riot, right? Like the, the, the things that I think are really moving conversation and that we remember and that when they were on, you're deeply debating them with folks at work aren't, have a level of imagination that means that they buck the data by their very creation. Um, so, yeah. Are, are you guys seeing um, some of that demand shift happening along generational lines? 
I mean, we've talked a lot about supply and in terms of demand, we still sometimes tend to talk about what's going to be successful with the black audience, but can we state or differentiate any twins, trends between an older cohort and maybe younger millennials and Gen Z? Yes and no. It's like literally all of these questions are like, it depends. So <laughs> I think that um, largely speaking, there are some generational trends that you can see when it comes to sort of like excitement, openness and opportunity to content that centers voices that have not been historically centered. I think that is true. Now, to what extent that generational shift is impacted by the fact that like if you're looking under 25, 50% of those people are not white. So like, well, of course they would want more. Like, I don't know that we've actually proven that like white younger people are like dramatically different than like older white people. They may be a little bit different, but like if I return back to some of our learnings from the uh, the 2016 election, like not that different, right? So I think that like, it's a yes, maybe, it depends on what you're looking at. Um, it depends on sort of where they live. There's regional differences. There's like, it's hard to like, I'm a firm believer that like, if our strategy for addressing inequity and addressing like racial um, injustice in our country is just like waiting for all the old people to die, it will not work. Mm. Well, I do want to bring in some data on that point because it is interesting to, to look at um, what kind of going back to your mainstream uh, comment uh, audiences look at or are attracted to, if you will. Um, there was actually a UCLA study uh, that Time had published in an article which found that ratings and social media engagement uh, for the majority of audiences across all age groups, um, including white audiences, peaked for shows that featured casts that were at least 31% non-white. And when you looked at the 18 to 49 group, it actually um, peaked when the show's cast featured primarily non-white actors. And so the, it was interesting because they framed it, the article was framed um, kind of in this positive light in terms of diversity, everyone wants diversity, this is great. Um, However, you know, it, it very much is uh, reminiscent of and is ultimately a business case for diverse representation and really this idea that we can only advance change when white audiences demand it. Uh, and so I'm curious, you know, getting you both to weigh in, obviously, you know, going back to the data question and what we're looking at, you know, that business case does matter in terms of what ultimately, you know, studios and so forth are willing to invest in. But is that, is that the way forward? Is that how we're essentially, you know, going to see the, the change? Um, so curious thoughts on that. CJ, I'm biased. I'm biased because my next film is about critical race theory. And one of the fathers of the father of critical race theory, Derek Bell, has this has this thing called entrance interest convergence, where he's like, you know, he's writing in the 70s. He's like, hey, everyone, civil rights movement only worked because these white people were afraid that it was making them look bad in the eyes of Russians. And, you know, he's he's very grounded about that, that, you know, that 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 white that that we only really do get giant shifts towards racial justice when white people see something in it for them. Um, I don't think that's a controversial opinion. I think that, that you would be hard pressed to find a time where that, where that isn't the case. So yes, there's something that doesn't, you know, 
your comment is so incisive and, and there's something that doesn't feel great about being like, great, now we got a business case that shows you you should be doing this thing that we all know you should be doing. But, but there also is a, uh, it, it also is not new information. It also just, I think, names a truth that we like to pretend is, is not there. Um, I think it also vibes with the truth that is more visceral for us of, I know that when I'm scrolling, you know, Netflix or Hulu, there's like a feeling that I have when I see a, you know, a new show and I'm like, this is just an all white people show, right? Like I, I just, I, I click past it. And some of those platforms even change the nature of their preview images to make it look like not an all white show even brand new movies they'll put a black character like like they're the main cast even though when you watch the movie you're like we saw that person a couple of times um so uh, so i think that this thing even if parts of it feel icky name something that we know to be true whether viscerally or you know thinking in terms of history yeah, I mean, it, it's so interesting. I, I think what I would add to that, because I agree with everything you said, what I would add to that is that, you know, when we think about, quote unquote, the race problem, right, the, the problem of race and racism specifically in the US, like if this was something that people of color could have solved on our own, we would have done it already, right? It's actually not in our interest that it continues. So the continuous like shifting of responsibility to black people to solve it is when you really think about it, like pretty infuriating. Cause it's like, yes, with all of the means of power and like to address this, I would have already. So clearly there's something that you also need to do at the same time. I think the reason why that narrative doesn't feel great is that like, it feels very disempowering. Right. And so I think this may be, um, again, another example of like, it's not either or right. It's not like things only change if white people say yes. Right. But it's also not like all the changes possible if black people fight hard enough for it. Right. We know that both of those statements are untrue. Right. And so, like, where's the room in the messy middle? Because I hear you like I have a love hate relationship with the words business case because it just like I feel like it drains like one percent of my personhood every day and I have to like replenish it. Because there is something, especially like when you are a person of color or like a marginalized group, um, having to prove that like it's financially viable for you to include me in stories I should have been included in because I'm a human and I live and I exist and I'm part of the country. That is like draining work, right? Um, yet I try to remind myself constantly that like many, many things that we decide to do within the context of the studio have to pass the quote unquote business case, right? And so if we want it to be sustainable, we have to figure out how to be making both cases at the same time. So I never miss an opportunity to remind them that like these people should be cast because they're human. So explain to me why they're not human enough to be cast. But at the same time, I also love to be able to trot out the data like what you just mentioned, which is that like, and audiences actually prefer this. Like audiences are more interested in this. You will make more money. And so part of the argument or the problem with just looking backwards is that one, we know that the race wasn't, the field wasn't level. So if we're looking backwards, we're looking at bias data. But also like, even if you're telling me that like a certain set of films performed really, really well without having any racial diversity in them, I will say, why are you not thinking about money you could have made if you had done it? Why do you assume 
that like if you had done it differently, the result would be less. There's a lack of imagination to imagine more because so much of our industry is so fear-based and there is a prevailing narrative that is kind of true, which is that you will get fired sooner for like taking a chance and being wrong than you will for missing an opportunity and it paid off for someone else somewhere else. And so like that as an incentive system is like a recipe for stagnation. And so like if we don't get a hold of that in our industry, because there are other industries that don't work that way. Like tech, for instance, is a big fail hard, fail fast, try it, shoot for the stars. And like we don't have any of that ethos in our business because it's all about like I just got to director level. I just got to VP. Just want to stay here. Keep my head down. I'm not going to advocate for the risky thing because like if I do and the risky thing doesn't work, like all I'm doing is like attracting negative attention to myself versus if I advocate for the safe thing, even when the safe thing doesn't work, you can like keep your job, which is like banana cakes. I also think it, you know, I also think what you're saying like means that we you know, it's almost kind of basic to be like, it means we have an opportunity. But I do think it means that, <laughs> you know, I do think it's time. I, I do think that that business case should hold our feet to the fire, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, when was a nut, you know, you, you want to know another time that people were really into diverse stories on in Hollywood, the 1930s, right? <laughs> like historians, you know, Karen Cox talks about there were 50 or 70 films trying to replicate the success of Gone with the Wind, right? We had all these films chasing old Southern stories with black casts, but it's just telling a story in the wrong way, right? It is telling a story that obscures the past and hides us from conceptualizing of black freedom and pretends that white supremacy has never existed, right? So this isn't a turning point that all of a sudden people are into seeing black people on screen. It, it is just, we now have a chance to do that differently, a chance to not stop short at like, well, good, we got all those roles that are non-white roles, but it's like, what is the nature of the story that we are telling, right? Like when we look back at this boom, are we just gonna be like, wow, we used that opportunity to make a whole bunch of digital originals where we imagined diverse people back into pasts where they could have never existed, Or will we be like, no, we used it to tell stories like Attica, you know, which is now nominated for best picture because it resurrects something that most people don't know or Summer of Soul, where people are feeling a sense of freedom and joy. It's about race, but also it's not just a civil rights movie, right? We're experiencing freedom and joy in ways that we never thought that we could. So I I hope that that holds our feet to the fire in terms of not just how are we gonna make our numbers and how are those numbers gonna be not problematic, but but how challenging are the stories that we're telling and what do they give back to us? Mm. I love that. that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I was just gonna say we need a metric for that because I think we, we talk about this a lot, like whatever is measured will be managed. Yes. And so the problem is that like things that are difficult to measure just get completely eliminated from the calculus because it's like, it's too hard. Um, But not (laughs) everything that can be measured is important. And a lot of things that are very important, like are difficult to measure. So like, then what? Yeah, I love this idea of a a new set of metrics, not just, am I gonna get roasted on Twitter for this casting decision? But how far are we pushing the envelope? Are we showing people that 
you know, interracial solidarity or that love is a political yeah. act or that there are spaces of freedom even within slavery. Like, you know, like what are the metrics for how, you know, it's almost like we need to create an extra credit system. I love that. I mean, I I tried to do something like this um, inside of Lionsgate where we've created um, a framework for analyzing um, how inclusive a story is. And it has a lot of different variables. It's what's happening on screen, from a casting perspective, but also from a representation and portrayal, tropes and stereotypes perspective. There's also what's happening behind the screen in terms of a diverse creative team. But we do have something that we call like a gate opening bonus or a groundbreaking bonus where we're really trying to, you know, give respect to and points to films that are hiring first-time directors that are from underrepresented backgrounds. Because if we all continue to decide that like, I want a black director if Ava and Ryan are available, and otherwise I don't want one or it's not important to have one, then those people are gonna be like, they can only do the movies they can do every year, right? And so if that's the capacity, like we have films that like films can stay on the shelf because it's like, there's a great role for a black male actor, but like Idris is not available. So we're just waiting for like when he's available. I'm like, are you <laughs> serious? So right we'll now? wait. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like literally yeah. like we will wait, right? And so how do we give credit for that? How do we give credit for groundbreaking representations where we're imagining people in ways that we haven't before. But what you're making me think of, CJ, is like even taking that to the next level and like potentially having a set of like groundbreaking narratives, truths, messages that we think would be powerful and actually like saying like, we want to tell a certain percentage or include a certain percentage of like these specific groundbreaking culture shifting messages in a certain percentage of our film. And it goes beyond just like, we wanna cast like 40% of our leads as like black or brown or et cetera. But it's like, we want to like promote the message that like interracial solidarity is critical. Are we doing that? Audience, if you remember nothing else, remember the words gate opening bonus, right? <laughs> like, like those words are so actionable and so challenging. Right. I, I love that you're even pushing me because I live in the world of rhetoric so much about like, oh, what would it look like to blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yes, but literally, what is the metric that you would or institutionalize in an organization to make sure that happens? Because you bet in 1992, they were having the same combo of people are watching black stories. This is our moment to change the nature of stories. Right. And and here we are having some of the same problems. And it has not occurred to me that that changing the that changing the system of measurements you know changes the nature of the demands and the work and what is the north star for what we're creating absolutely i mean i i love that because you know so much of the ways in which these conversations are being had it's within existing frameworks and to your points about you know it's just kind of increasing you know the volume or the percentage of this kind of pie as it stands now as opposed to breaking out of those existing uh, structures and creating something that's, you know, completely new. Uh, and so, so much there, I mean, in this entire conversation, but I, I think, you know, takeaways absolutely as we think about reclaiming the narrative and, you know, what are the stories that should be told, who's telling them uh, and it needing to go beyond just these kind of very um, with, you know, 
things that fit inside of a box and what we're used to seeing and hearing. And it takes having that diverse representation off screen in order to really push that forward. And then I love Kamala, your points about, you know, rewarding those, those new ideas and ways of thinking. Uh, and that's what it takes for people to kind of step outside of those safe zones. Um, so much for people in the, the industry as we think about driving content, but I think also as we apply this to everything we're doing from a marketing, communications, hiring practices, um, how organizations just behave overall. So I want to thank uh, both of you. I mean, you have been amazing and appreciate all of the time and insights. Um, thank you, Edward, for co-briefing with me today. And thank you all in the audience for joining us. Uh, we'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming of briefings, as well as our third and final part of the Beyond Checking a Box series. We'll be talking about how organizations can build a diversity operating system. Um, but until then, consider yourself briefed. <laughs>